Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the show. My guest this week is an old friend. We played Little League Baseball together and a lot of Tetris in history class. We lost touch, but I am so glad we reconnected. After chatting for a few minutes, we started the show, and I fell into a world I did not know I would be so fascinated with. Vincent Boomer Olivas started in the beverage industry as an analyst for a beer company after graduating college and returning from New Zealand. While he had a marketing degree, his business experience was not largely focused on numbers and forecasting, but with a willingness to learn all facets of the business and an openness to new experiences, he has worked his way through multiple positions and into his current role as a program manager for Two Towns Cider House. In this position, he gets to work closely with just about everyone at the company, from CEO to logistics, cultivating relationships and getting products from the cider house to stores and hopefully your home. With hard seltzers taking over last year, it will be interesting to see the next big trend and where the business will be going. This episode contains great information for anyone that thinks business degrees mean being locked away in a cubicle somewhere or that sales can be bad, fake, or boring. It's also great for anyone that may be experiencing some personal strife or is struggling to find their footing in their careers. As we learn in this episode, sometimes you just have to go for it. Other times, you got to hit the reset button and do something crazy, getting out of your comfort zone and gaining some perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, episode five of The Job in Detail. Uh, so my name is... Vincent Olivas, um, but everybody that knows me, I go by Boomer. It's a nickname I've had since birth, and Nick knows it well from our days of sports and playing <laughs> playing a lot of baseball and stuff growing up. Um, I yeah, know Nick growing up through high school, junior high, back even, and then you know even before that, before school, we were uh, playing baseball a lot in little league and such. So we go back a long ways, and um, you know, unfortunately, kind of lost touch through college. But that's because I took off into a different state and kind of got invested in the craft beer world up here. And, you know, when you have beers, our minds tend to go in different directions. So I'm sorry, Nick, I need to keep in touch and send you some beer. Um, so I went to school at the University of Oregon and I uh, started working in the craft beer industry. Um, I actually was a sales analyst originally with uh, Columbia Distributing. They are now I believe the third largest wholesaler in alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages in the nation. and um, Got my kind of foot in the door there doing sales analytics for big grocery chains and um, kind of crunching national data for different segments of the alcohol category. A little bit in the non-alc as well, but uh, mainly beer and uh, different avenues of beer because there's like a million different beers now. Um, so from there, got really invested in kind of the supplier side of things and got a lot of great relationships with uh, different breweries, different cider companies, uh, basically anybody that put booze in a can or bottle came through that door trying to get their stuff on a shelf and would come to me looking for data. And uh, it was kind of interesting because I wasn't my study initially, you know, I was in marketing and I really wanted to be a part of brands. Um, but, you know, I kind of got my foot in the door helping hundreds of them, which was really, really neat. So eventually got more into, um, you know, pursuing that side and wanting to get more involved with a you know, smaller team and working with maybe a brewery versus a bunch and uh, kind of saw what Craft Cider was doing at the time. Um, it was not only blowing up, but there was a couple of companies I was working with that uh, were doing some big things, one in particular who I now work for. So I started working with Two Town Cider and I got into sales with uh, key accounts chains there. So it was basically doing 
the sales side of what I was crunching data for, um, presenting all this stuff to grocery chains and expanding distribution and doing business development sort of uh, analytics and uh, actually being out in the trade a ton and going into every store imaginable and talking to people about stuff they'd never heard of. So it was a lot of little different pieces to the job and uh, eventually kind of wanted to narrow that down even a little bit more and work with uh, the company more than I wanted to work with groceries. So actually about a month ago, I just took a new role as program manager and um, am now organizing a lot of that grocery distribution from the internal side of things. Um, so I work with uh, the cider maker and our marketing team and our sales team all together to make sure that certain products are, you know, being looked at that they should you know we have a lot of different flavors and things we're always developing and uh, and get to help with the forecasting of that um, also get to work with the marketing team to make sure when we launch products you know all the signage and graphics and all the POS is aligned and making sure the sales team gets that at the right time but before it goes to the sales team it's got to go to the distributor who I used to work for so having that relationship was huge in all of this and uh, it's now navigating a lot of avenues just to simply get cider on a shelf um, so it's been a very long roads for five years in terms of having you know, three different roles, but all of it literally ties into the same exact thing I was doing from the start. And um, that's just kind of because I realized the craft beer community is really tight and it's really, it's got a great, it's literally a giant family of people. And you couldn't say that more in the midst of a pandemic. You know, you can really tell who's you know, out there helping each other versus who's out there just trying to look after themselves. And um, I can honestly say I fell into the right hands and found an amazing company. And um, yeah, I'm extremely happy with where things ended up. And uh, obviously being in the midst of this whole Corona piece has been almost as much of a nightmare as it is a blessing because, you know, a lot of our industry folks are not so fortunate. Basically right now, anybody that's not in grocery lost all their business overnight with, you know, draft and bars and restaurants closing. So it's been a very tough couple months for a lot of us, but um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate and blessed to be on the brighter side of things right now, but uh, we're starting to see kind of that swing back, which is great. And the data is also showing that the swing is coming back in a little bit and you know, we can only hope it hangs on, but it's more important right now that everybody just be safe and clean in the long run because we are servicing people and we are working in stores and we're always around, you know, a high risk kind of atmosphere in terms of what's going on right now. So um, yeah, a lot of different shifts and a lot of what's going on is also kind of pointed me into just <laughs> staying away from some of that risk and, you know, trying to you know, focus on the more important aspects of the industry and also the company right now. And um, yeah, I've had a really good time with it. That's awesome. There's, so there's a lot of positions that you've had that I, I kind of want to unpack a little bit, but uh, <laughs> yeah. in your current position as program manager, what does your day to day look like? Uh, it is a lot of hats. Um, my basically, I wake up every day right now because uh, about an hour and a half ahead of schedule to update a daily sales dashboard. Um, none of our forecasting that we established even you know a quarter ago is relevant because of everything that's happened with the pandemic. So we are now tracking basically everything against you know sales from the month before it happened and the month after to kind of see where we should be landing and every day having to look at um, you know the daily average rate of sales versus those days and that fell into my hands being the kind of data and analyst person on the team. Um, so I'm working with the ownership and basically building out endless dashboards and we're always finding new pieces to add. So the first hour of my day is basically just updating that and kind of getting a feel for where things are on a daily basis because that does affect a lot of our decisions right now in terms of some of the new avenues we're taking to get through the whole Corona pandemic. Um, 
but then after that, you know, I'm typically talking with my boss, who is our sales execution manager, and he's the one uh, more or less making sure everything is getting done out in the trade. Um, we do not only a ton of sales and grocery, but we have a lot of what we call programming. So we'll do, uh, for example, right now, a <clears throat> big campaign with the Portland Timbers professional soccer team here. Uh, we have a big partnership with them and have a specialty six pack that we're doing with their logo and Timber Joey is kind of our lumberjack mascot dude with the chainsaw. We got these big cutout posters of him that we're putting up near our stacks. And it's just like a, we have a lot of great relationships with our retailers and we do a lot of these programs to, you know, build not only the relationship, but sales for both of us. So he executes all of that. And it's also on me to make sure all those giant cardboard cutouts and things get to all these different stores and you know, there's hundreds of different stores out there and having to work with our distributor team to make sure it's all where it needs to go. So I'm still kind of learning all of that, but successfully I think navigated the first big project of that sort and um, that's been a lot of day-to-day -day, um, just in terms of getting those pieces all arranged um, and then I usually have to dive into some project of you know some flavor analysis and trying to see what the next trend is going to be for you know, our flavorless next year that's been a lot of fun lately so you can look at a lot of grocery data from the last three months or even last year and kind of see what's trending and what's not to get an idea of you know, what we should be looking at making or if what we're making is the right thing to be making and it's kind of some funny results on that but we can dive into that later um so you know a lot of it is you know internal data analysis and then just working with our sales team to make sure that things are getting executed where they need to be um, and then some little like side hat projects on top of that just because you know we're not all great with excel and somehow i got really good at it in like two years of working in beer so that seems to be my strong suit at the moment was the uh, sales analytics that you learned, was that all on the job or was that from school? Pretty much on the job, honestly. Um, I took maybe one semester of Excel training in college. And I can honestly say none of that is relevant to what I was doing just because like, it's like learning anything in school, unless it's actually relevant or applicable to what's you know on the table, you can't really adapt, especially when it's four years prior to what you're actually using it for professionally. <laughs> so uh yeah, a lot of it was literally on the spot. Um, I actually had gotten that initial sales job while I was in New Zealand studying and kind of just trying to work over there and applying for jobs back home and uh, saw that Excel was a skill set and reached out to a friend that had posted about the job and was literally just told, you know, you can figure a lot of this stuff out on YouTube if you're even it's just a matter of figuring out the pieces. And maybe to my blessing, I was also working with a lot of older folks that just aren't really fine-tuned with a lot of modern technology. So it gave me time and, you know, their patience to let me develop and you know, slowly build a lot of the skill set. Um, so, yeah, everything was literally figured out just right there. Not to mention the beer industry is just kind of unique in a lot of its own aspects. So it'd be hard to you know, transfer you know, being an analyst from maybe some other I don't know, software or retail, other sorts, you know, versus working in a very specific logistical chain of grocery distribution. You know, there's a lot of legal stuff in there too. And then eventually you know, navigating all those different channels just to simply get stuff on a shelf. It'd be hard to take that skill set anywhere else. And it'd also be hard for anyone to just jump in and do that. So it's kind of interesting to see those different dynamics. And that goes for every industry. You know, obviously we all have our unique challenges, but it's uh, becoming more apparent that this one has a lot of very small and unique relationships that are very, very valuable. So do you think your location where you're at, uh, you said Portland, right? Yeah. Does that, does that help you out? There's um, in terms of a scene or is it get regionally or is it a nationwide thing? 
It was definitely a scene here that I saw before it became a scene, for example, in LA. Um, when I first started going, I mean, let's, I mean not gonna lie, craft beer has been around in a lot of places for a long time, but in terms of actually seeing the boom and that build and you know the IPA and Hayes start in Portland, but Portland was definitely responsible for a lot of the craft beer boom. I mean, we were at like 95 breweries within 40 miles of you know downtown. This was five years ago, and um, that count's only getting bigger now with breweries making seltzers, and you know we got more cideries popping up. So there's like different avenues of not only breweries but different alcohol producers. And our distilling is huge here, and this just kind of fits that Portland weird culture where everybody's just trying to do something different, and make something unique. So. Yeah, even just in Eugene, when I was going to school, that's kind of where it all started. And then um, sure enough, getting to Portland, it was just bigger and it was more robust and people were just doing a lot of weird stuff. So it definitely made you kind of made me anyway, keep a head on my shoulders and made sure that I knew always what was going on. Because at first it was hard root beers when I started, everybody was drinking that with ice cream and now it's hard seltzers and nobody wants calories anymore and <laughs> drinking a lot of weird stuff. So it's uh you know, a lot of that can be contributed to Portland in a way because we're just weird and we're always doing weird things. And you know, for a while, it was kind of the craft beer mecca, but you're seeing that in so many places now that I'm probably just being a little bit biased in a sense. Um, but you know, there are places that were res responsible for this boom. I and mean, you know, we got Portland and San Diego, Denver, and you know, it just kind of depends where you're at and what you're looking for. But um, you touched on a little bit there um, in terms of like staying on top of things how do you know what the next trend is you could look at sales analytics but to a certain extent that will only tell you maybe what's not pushing as well or things like that are you basically talking to people saying oh i think this would be a great idea or how are you guys basically figuring out what's going to be next um well i had a really interesting conversation actually like three weeks ago with our cider maker and this was planning for all of our limited releases for next year. And our limited release is basically our innovation line. So a lot of those are, basically all of them are ciders we've never made before. And if they're popular enough, we kind of turn them into full-time ones down the road. So I was tasked with looking at data from previous sales, which to be fair, looking at data is, you know, that's historic stuff. So, you know, in terms of looking forward, it helps, but we're always trying to innovate versus kind of look at what's been so we're looking at all this stuff and we're like, okay, we got, we got it really hot, <clears throat> but they're all being done by like just a few companies. And then it turns out those couple companies were us. <laughs> so <laughs> we're looking at, you know, Oregon has potentially probably the highest craft cider sales in terms of its overall percentage of alcohol. I think Oregon's got to be number one, if not one of the top in the nation. So we're very in a very good environment to figure out what's hot and what's not. And we realized really quickly that anything two town ciders making right now just becomes really hot. And it's, honestly, it's really good. I mean, we use the best ingredients, it's all high quality, and we're kind of in a market right now that people will drink anything if you put it in front of them, and it's got, you know, some colors and flavors to it, but, like, we take that further by also making a really good cider. So, <clears throat> it's been tough because you have to be out in the trade. You got to see what other people are putting out there to really get a gauge on what's doing well. So, when you look at the data, you can be like, oh, yeah, I did see that out there because it's hard to look at a column and read, you know, X cider six pack sold this much. But if you're out in the trade and understand what that cider actually was and how it was branded, how it was marketed, was it put out on the floor versus just put into like a fridge or a cold shelf, um, that has a huge impact. So that's part of my job, you know, personally, and also working with our sales team is to navigate, 
you know, how these brands actually impact the sales that we're seeing, because some of them are literally just thrown in a box and sell really well. Some of them are put all over the floor in a grocery store where everybody can see them and maybe don't do very well. So that has a big impact on you know, how we want to present our items, because we don't want to blow stuff out all over there if it's not going to be received well by an entire crowd. So we're not going to put our entire line of barrel-aged sour series ciders that are $10 a bottle, you know, on a huge display everywhere. We want to consolidate those in the best spot that we know they'll sell based on what we've seen in the past that we've done and what other people have done. Um, lot with what you actually see going on too. Sorry for the delay here. So in there you mentioned um, sometimes the sales uh, or like the where you place the item in the supermarket or uh, how it's marketed can have an impact on how well the product does. Yeah. How are you able to tell or how do you guys reflect on that where you think the marketing campaign may have been the problem versus the product? Is that focus groups or how do you kind of figure that out? There is a lot of conversation that actually goes into what I'm slowly being more involved in. And, uh, you know, some of the back end conversations are, you know, done between my boss and our distributors, kind of upper management folks. And um, we, we rely a lot on our launches to make a big impact because we're fortunate in the sense that we've built our brand very strong and to the point where we have a big share up in the area. So our name resonates well. Our name is definitely out there. People know who we are. And that helps in a sense now because when we launch something, it's just it's more a matter of awareness versus trusting that, you know, the cider is actually going to be good because there's a 99.999 chance that it's really, really good and probably going to win some award somewhere because that's just how everything's been going. And um, there's always just going to be the emphasis on quality. We won't push anything out there that's not, you know, been lab tested multiple times and ran through several lines of canning to make sure it's, you know, going well and, and we still run into issues everybody does but having that dial on you know flavor consistency quality using the best ingredients keeping everything fresh um has definitely let us rely a lot more just on our sales and marketing aspect to really push you know the image of the brand and you know get it put in the front of the store versus you know just sticking it in a little side corner somewhere that's technically a display but it's not um you know it's not good floor space and in grocery you know anyone studied marketing you know you got very different uh, routes of attraction throughout the store there's very different um, exposure rates depending on how you walk the store and what you're looking at it's a lot of terminology here that would probably help that I just don't remember from my <laughs> marketing books days <laughs> um, but obviously you walk in you got lobby displays that are front and center and you see a lot of big stuff there and um, next time you go into a store if you just realize what's right in front somebody had to fight hard for that space like it's not just something that's there and it might be a bunch of flowers but it's probably because it's mother's day you know it might be a ton of guinness but it's probably because it's saint patty's day like it's usually very catered and it's very very valuable space and we've gotten to a point now where you know our brand resonates and people know that we deserve that space and now we can put the emphasis on you know let's build the right signage and let's get the right you know color coordination going if we're going to you know do multiple flavors and let's look at you know the occasions that are surrounding you know events that are going right now or you know, if we have a different charity event going on at the time whether it's food bank or humane society and we do fight to end hunger programs like a lot of that gets tied into these displays to really just make a bigger impact and if we can tie that in with you know some of our launches it's just a matter of 
really spreading it out to the masses a lot more versus just kind of relying on social media and which we do a lot of too because that's just a, that's a whole other conversation in itself but um yeah understanding just the relationships and stores of knowing you know who's going to give you that space and how to navigate getting that space it takes a long time it takes years you know you can't just go and make a friend overnight some stores you can but you know there's a store in downtown Portland that's one of the top five beer selling grocery stores in the entire nation. It's like, you don't just walk in and get your stuff put in a good place there. It's, you know, <laughs> you yeah. got to show up and help out and really make your presence known and, you know, be a value to them so they can be a value to you. And uh, you know, all this stuff just kind of ties into not only getting a good location for your product, but you know, making sure that it's something people are going to go back and buy. Um, so, you know, I can't speak highly enough about, you know, the stuff that we make and the quality that it is to, you know, make that such an important statement because a lot of stuff is out there. It's just not good. And it'll get these massive displays because someone will come at them. It's like, Oh, look, we got this really cool sign. We got this really cool poster. Like I'm going to come and build it, make it look like this. We're going to shape it like a giant tank and put Coors Light stuff all over it. Like we see all of this and it's like, you show up two months later and a lot of it's still sitting there. <laughs> so we can go to that same manager and be like, Hey, that same amount of floor space you can consolidate into a quarter and we'll still make you more money because you know, our cider is a, premium price point and people buy it um and having you know that kind of ammunition to go in with as a sales team is really powerful now and we're starting to get more into that realm even as you know a craft cidery which is pretty fun yeah that was actually you've touched on a little bit but that was actually kind of my next question was when you're trying to get into a store is that more at like a corporate level or is it individual store level uh like trying to talk to the store managers trying to get the product in front of them that kind of thing it varies by every single retail chain. Um, and that's where you know, the relationships couldn't be more important. Um, so I worked with mainly our specialty chains. So I had Whole Foods on the national scale, but they have different regions. There was a NorCal region that now incorporate a little bit of Idaho. And then there's the Seattle region that has Oregon. There's a Southern California region, but that kind of has Arizona, it's got Hawaii. It's like everybody operates a little bit differently and they all have their own individual buyers. So like for Whole Foods, for example, you got to get it into one system so everybody can access your item and they basically just pull it from a cloud and can enter it into their own. But that doesn't guarantee that it's get sold. That just guarantees that it's going to show up in their system if you scan it. So, you know, and then prior to that, it takes actually presenting it to one of these buyers and getting them to believe in it and you know, actually authorize the item. So that's kind of the basis for a lot of it is presenting an item to a corporate buyer. You get them to authorize it. Um, you know, that's always kind of just a crapshoot in itself. You never know what you're going to get. Um, and then, you know, they'll turn it on. And there are, I should say, a lot of the bigger grocery stores, whether it's your Albertson Safeways and your Kroger or your Targets, they'll have what are called, you know, sets. And twice a year, maybe three times a year, they'll tweak these things up and you know, put different items out um, and kind of refresh the coolers every so often. So you're often presenting for those sets. Um, but if you don't have a retailer that operates like that you're typically just getting an authorization so you can go in and sell and then it's up to the store manager at that point to believe in you as well and let you put it either on the shelf or if you're lucky get you know, good floor space for it and present it so um yeah it definitely varies by chain um, i worked with a lot of ones that did both i worked with ones that were direct order only so we'd have to you know, work with actually just the distributor and their team to make sure they knew what items to suggest on a direct order because these some of these stories were just going directly through an internet portal to order their stuff versus letting us come and present anything. So that was a whole nother challenge because, you know, without being able to go in and sample somebody on a site or go in and actually present even just a sales sheet of information or talk about it, like, you know, who are we at that point? 
Um, so it really has changed a lot in the last few years too with that direct order system. It's becoming more popular and some people see it becoming kind of a way of the future. And it's a little bit scary for you know the relationship side of the business. Um, I can understand where it has its positives and I think it'll probably get there at some point, but you know, in some communities and I can only speak for Portland right now and some of the ones I've worked in, but it's a really tight knit community. And if you're not in there establishing relationships with a lot of these buyers and store managers, let alone the corporate ones, like you're just not gonna get a whole lot done. It's one thing to just get your item authorized, but it's really more about you know, portraying who your brand is and the quality that you offer. And then also the support that we can offer as a sales team as well. So um, yeah, I guess that kind of covers a little more than the initial question, but yeah, it starts with that oh. buyer, <laughs> goes yeah, down the manager and it just, yeah. That's perfect though, because I mean, it, obviously you, you said it a couple of times that it's very relationship driven. Do you ever find yourself traveling uh, for those relationships or your company as a whole? I mean, I know this coronavirus thing would put a put on that right now, but uh, just in general, before any of that. Yeah, actually quite a bit. And for a while, that was one of the biggest advantages and one of the funnest parts of the job. Um, I mean, it, <laughs> my second week as a key account grocery sales rep, actually, I got a call, I think the weekend before, and uh, one of my coworkers was like, oh shoot, man, I forgot about this event. Um, we got a craft cider fest out in Boise, but it's also combined with this like, punk music festival. Like, would you mind going out to cover this? I was like, yeah, please. <laughs> so like, <laughs> literally I had to like go grab a giant canopy tent, a ton of gear, fly out, you know, meet with the distributors to pick up kegs. And this was all like my second week on the job, not knowing what's going on. So we got to do, you know, funs, like, fun things like that initially. And then, you know, slowly that was, it was less festival travel and uh, became more grocery oriented. So it literally wherever there was an office that we needed to meet, um, got to go to Austin, got to go to Orlando and meet with people at uh, yard house headquarters, which was actually really cool. Cause they have like, it's part of a giant, oh, it's Darden restaurants, you know, so they own they have a bunch of different restaurants into that chain. And, um, they have all these mock kitchens in there that look exactly like restaurant kitchens. And then they have all these bars that look exactly like yard house bars and you can go and sample them at a mock yard house bar that's in basically like a giant campus building full of just dozens of other restaurants and bars, mock kitchens and stuff. It was just like really bizarre. It was like going to college at a place just catered for restaurants and alcohol. <laughs> and, wow. uh, um, so definitely some cool experiences. And then um, obviously with that, there's kind of Kind of branch off every couple nights or so and go check out some live music and stuff in some of these cool towns whether it's austin and orlando i've had some good experiences and um, go down to bay area and san diego quite a bit or just day trips up to seattle like there was a lot for a while when i was doing more of the sales route it was like 30 percent of the job realistically was just being gone and traveling which got old after a while and i just couldn't quite keep up with it as much as i wanted to so uh, Fortunately, I get to work with the same team and do a lot of the same stuff, but just kind of more on the back end. And it's a little less busy now <laughs> in terms of what I need to be. The fact that you were able to uh, to travel, learn the sales side, things like that, do you think that helped you in the position you're in now uh, as a program manager? Tremendously, yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of like a, a strange blessing in disguise. Uh, the um, employee, Sam, that had the position prior to me, ended up taking another opportunity during this whole pandemic when things were kind of up in the air. So I like, you know, slowly morphed into some of her duties and officially just took the role not too long after. Um, so not only was I doing everything that she was doing, but also realizing like, well, there are a lot of, you know, pieces to the distributor relationships and the retail relationships that are 
you know, invaluable. Because I mean, unless you're out there for several years understanding, you know, what is going on in a store, let alone who's controlling those decisions and how you can affect them, it's it's just really, really difficult to jump in and navigate a lot of that. Um, so if anything, I've just been able to kind of see different, you know, opportunities within our sales team and the distribution channel and, you know, how to get ahead of things a little bit sooner to make sure the sales team is not, you know, scrambling as much, but a lot of it's just pushing on communication and trying to get, you know, info from people that usually is outside of our control. So, um, it definitely was an advantage and, um, having Sam plant all of those seeds initially really only made it easier for me to kind of jump in and do it all. But, you know, for someone coming outside, you know, for maybe potentially completely different industry, um, honestly, right now, it's, it'd be kind of a scary thought, especially with how much is going on, how much we're trying to push out, how much we're trying to innovate amidst what's going on in the industry and the world right now. And um, without having, you know, some competency to not only the industry, but just working with the people that we need to, um, I don't think a whole lot would be able to get done. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it definitely helped. What does it look like for the creation of a new product uh, from the initial idea? Who's coming up with that idea? Is it a kind of a community type thing? Um, and then all the way to execution and distribution. Oof, I, I wish I had a better idea on the initial part, but I mm -hmm. want to say we probably never launched one item exactly the same. And everything that we've launched has been like in a three to six month turnaround, just like flying by the seat of our pants. And it's always gotten done pretty seamlessly and very nicely, but at the same time, like, because, <laughs> because of that reason, none of it's been consistent in a lot of ways. And um, I think we all tip our hats off to our entire team for just being able to navigate what we're doing. But um, you know, a lot of it is data driven initially, I want to say. Um, I had a big part kind of in, you know, playing, you know, back when we, we launched our seltzer brand about a year ago, and it was kind of fun to navigate that whole process because we had launched a bunch of new ciders and pushed you know, small launch campaigns for those, but to launch a whole Seek Out Seltzer brand that's under our umbrella, but basically a whole separate entity, um, that was a conversation that was very data-driven. Initially, we saw that cider was growing, but it wasn't the hottest thing in the market. And then literally overnight, you had White Claw and Truly just take over. And it became such a big part of the overall craft business, if you put it together, that it started to outpace it. And then it started to out sell it in places and we're like oh shoot if we're not jumping on this like we're not jumping on any growth and we're just kind of hanging on to a category that honestly we grew locally um in craft cider so it was more of an opportunity but also an, an, uh, an innovation idea and uh in terms of trying to grow the company in terms of the vision they had overall and um, what the owners wanted to do i think it was just the only it was the only avenue so there was a lot of craft brewers that didn't you know, do this research prior and a lot of people already established their seltzer business and then they started throwing all their own seltzers and sparkling light calorie things and there's only room for so much and that's already a small shelf space like not everybody wants seltzer but the ones that do drink a ton of it right now and it's been weird um it's been really bizarre and it's kind of changed a lot of our perspectives on just how to how to approach you know making making these decisions um, so the seltzer was one thing that was a huge data-driven piece, you know, industry-wide it was really big and then it finally caught on even with just the craft beer drinkers here in Portland. So when that became a thing, it was like, all right, that's an idea. We need to develop it. And from there it goes you know, in the hands of marketing to spend several months just um, looking at different brands, ones that coincide with the two towns image, but also, you know, has its own name. 
Um, so that's always kind of an interesting process to see and can't, but can't give enough respect to our marketing team and the amount of just <laughs> probably pain and suffering they go through bouncing ideas back and forth. But the fact that we can do it all in-house, we have an amazing graphic designer and a social team that leads it all and kind of blows it out there. And between the conversations with them and sales, we just have to come together with agreements on what's going to be presented and how's it going to be presented and what does grocery want? And, you know, if that's 80% of our sales and we probably have to cater to them to an extent. And, you know, it's not always the initial vision of the company, but, you know, if we're trying to push it in a growing avenue, then we got to probably look at what they're doing. Um, so it's a lot of back and forth and I'm sure there's some strife and I don't have a lot of conversation or a lot of talk in that conversation, but, you know, it's just, any sales and marketing team is going to have that. And it's just kind of like, here's what's going to work. And then the other side has the vision of what they want to do. And it's just a matter of making that mesh. And we always seem to do it really well. And um, from there, it's just on the hands of kind of following up on that whole authorization piece. You got to talk to the buyer and get them interested in what you're presenting and um, probably pull together a story with some data that's relevant to know at least the category if not something specific to what you're trying to sell if it's a brand new item and a brand new flavor and there's no data or any history on it that's kind of tough so um that's a kind of comes into my hands a little bit more to find the data and put together a presentable story for our sales team to get that into the hands of the right people and then it's a conversation with our distributor to make sure they take the item if it's accepted and sometimes you don't even know if it's accepted but you got to get distributors to take it so there's always that kind of juggle with how much do you send versus how much is actually going to go and um once it lands with their distributors it's our sales reps that kind of follow up on everything and go out and sell it and uh typically those conversations are a week or two in advance before the item arrives and we just go and find any grocery manager possible that we're you know confident we can get our item to and chat with them and say hey we got this coming and i'm gonna come and you know help and support doing xyz and i'll do this demo or tasting well not right now because there's all these coronas <laughs> pandemic stuff's going on but um yeah it's a lot of it is on us there to follow up and just make sure that you know not only is the store supported but people are being educated and we can do demos and samplings and got festivals and different craft festivals and music stuff all the time that's just you know we have a very busy schedule when there's you know actually events going on and um, the education piece is huge. So it's uh, a lot of follow-up and that never ends. You know, there's always social media stuff going out about those items for, you know, whether they're a full-time or a seasonal, they're always just blasting stuff out and providing recipes or different cocktail ideas. And you're just kind of trying to keep people interested and engaged until we launch something new. Um, so a lot of it, just keeping things fresh and innovative has been, I think a big key to our success, especially in a market that changes so often. Um, so we have to do this process quite a bit. <laughs> How long does it take to make a cider? And does that timeline ever hold you guys back in terms of shifting trends? I mean, like the seltzer thing came up overnight. Is yeah. it going, uh-oh, we need to start this new project right now because it's a six-week lead time or what, whatever it happens to be? Yes, definitely. So for us, I mean, I think the big shift initially was space because um, we knew seltzer was going to be big. And even within just a few months, I want to say it was roughly a quarter of our sales. Um, wow. Fortunately, with that stuff, though, I mean, it's more of a cocktail mixture in terms of, you know, how it's made versus having to um, make a whole cider from scratch. And like for us, it, we took a very different approach with the seltzer, actually. And in a way, it was <laughs> we had to we had to navigate a lot of different avenues and trying to figure out how to make it all work, I'm sure. But we did uh, the first all fruit based seltzer. Um, so it's actually not 
brewed with any sugar, you know, White Claw, Truly, all the bigger ones out there, you know, they're a very clean tasting, more or less flavorless in my opinion, but they have that essence to them, like LaCroix, you know, it's like, but um, they're doing that by brewing some sort of a sugar to get the alcohol, which is basically just a alcoholic water, and then you add an essence to it. Um, there are other ones out there with variations of fruits and flavors, but we took a different approach because we're actually considered a winery. Um, we're not just, there's no like cider and beer. You're like beer or wine by law. Um, so we're not able to brew. We're legally you just can't brew. And as a winery, you also can't uh, carbonate to certain levels. So we were forced to kind of like craft our own kind of intuitive seltzer in a way that was not only different, but approachable. Um, so we ended up using a cider-based seltzer. So fortunately, we're you know, always making cider. So we were able to use that as a source um, for the alcohol and the seltzer. And then um, everything else is actually done in-house with real fruits and flavors. So we got key lime juice and raspberry juice and um, passion fruit and pineapple juices that we splash on top for some flavor. And then we're also using essences that we steam, like basically vacuum steam out um, essential oils is actually what it is so we get the essential oils of these fruits and use that as an essence so everything's done completely naturally which is a lot of fun uh, but that's also tied into the production aspect of you know it's not simply just throwing booze in a tank anymore it's you know there's different avenues and we had to add different tanks and we had to expand our warehouse space um, and cider itself actually takes about four to six weeks to make versus the seltzer being more of that mixture so, you know, fortunately we can get all the cider made in advance and then just kind of, you know, keep it on hand to make the seltzer and do whatever we need to do. But there's also the cider side of things. <clears throat> and um, some of these ciders take four weeks, some take six weeks, some have, you know, secondary fermentation, some go into barrels. So there is actually a massive production schedule that I don't even want to look at because it would just give me a headache. But uh, I do have to every once in a while to see what's ready and what's available and what we could send out. Um, and, uh, I wish I could speak more to how they keep track of it all, but I mean, you're talking about certain raw ingredients coming in on time and then let alone making the cider, but now we're running into issues, especially right now with uh, can shortages and trying to make sure that the cans arrive on time. So there's always something that's in flux and some headache going on. Um, some of our ciders actually in the next month or so are actually going to come out with paper labels on them because there's absolutely no cans to source to get proper prints um, oh, wow. some of the bigger companies and bigger corporations, you know, bottle that stuff up prior to the pandemic, just because out of scarcity and it leaves a lot of the little guys with, you know, little or nothing. So we got something, we didn't get nothing, uh, but, you know, always forced to make these shifts and changes just kind of based on what the industry's throwing at us. And a lot of the time it's ingredient based and sometimes it's, you know, employee based. If someone, you know, we run, get, a couple of people get sick in the winter and it throws the shift out of schedule and suddenly we can't make as much like, it's constantly it's constant chaos and um we do manage it very well and you know by consistently putting out a really good product and managing relationships well we can probably negate a lot of the frustrations there but um yeah i mean i could <laughs> i i could go on and on you know there's some ciders that are just fermented juice and then some that have whole different processes involved and you know, some that use ancient methods and some that go in barrels and it's like trying to coordinate all of that on a schedule takes uh take some wizardry and there's a lot of it from the top level or top level of the company for sure. <laughs> the, uh, the chaos though, I mean, you guys are managing and it seems like that's what keeps things interesting though. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, there's never a dull moment in the industry, let alone in the warehouse or amongst the <laughs> team. There's just something always going on and another problem that we just have to vent about. And at the end of the day, you can just got to laugh and 
have a beer about it or have cider about it because it's uh it's just never ending there's really no industry like it you're talking about massive pieces of machinery on top of you know alcohol that's already just you know delicate and the whole thing in itself is just uh it's been a it's been a privilege to be a part of for, to say the very least and not to mention just how much it's changed but um, you know, I'm thoroughly interested in every aspect of our company and every brewery and like you know whether it's the accounting piece of it or the data piece or the production and you know what actually goes into the cider and where the ingredients are sourced like I just nerd out on just about all of that so it's like uh, it just amazes me that a lot of this goes on and doesn't throw everybody in disarray you know we somehow manage to stay <laughs> very family oriented and I think that just goes down to the kind of company that we are um I don't think a lot of you know sane people would handle things nearly as well but <laughs> I don't know if it's just like the country folk living out in apple orchards or what it is so we just got a bunch of really good people with good heads on their shoulders and we managed to keep each other in check and help out where needed and we all wear a lot of different hats so at the end of the day it's like we can fill in and fix a lot of these issues they're not impossible but it's just what are we going to deal with today? And then what are we going to deal with tomorrow? And um, what, you know, when's the canning line going to go down again? And, oh, we got two days of not making cider in cans. Like that's actually a big deal. So we got to push back on distribution for a little bit. And it's just a never ending battle, but it's a lot of fun. I think that uh, in my experience, having a lot of people that wear a lot of hats actually helps because that overlap, it's, it creates a little bit of empathy. It really does. Totally. Yeah. I mean, our CEO is out there, you know, on his back fixing the canning line with wrenches and hammers and doing anything that he can, you know, operating forklifts, like everybody does everything when they need to. And that's ultimately what yeah drives a lot of success. Cannot, awesome. uh, yeah, couldn't deny that, especially in the last few months. I know uh, things are, are different right now, but um, do you work remote or are you guys normally in a warehouse, like all kind of together so you could actually pass by and talk to the salespeople directly? Or is that a lot of phone relationship? Um, a little bit of both. We have a lot of completely remote sales folks. The, I think there's, I want to say close to a hundred full-time folks now at this point between all the production and you know, sales and accounting and everybody that's involved. So it's, a, I don't think there's more than a hundred might be full-time in the summer with extra. Don't quote me on that, but anywho, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people. I want to say maybe 70% you know, are based down in Corvallis, which is where every you know, all the cider is. That's where all the orchards and ingredients and the production is all at. But we have our sales teams. So we got a handful in California. I got a handful up in Washington, got Chicago, Idaho, um, myself and two, three others that are kind of Portland based or technically remote. Uh, but we'll go down there, you know, a couple times a month when needed. Not so much at the moment, but um, I was actually just down there yesterday to just kind of say hey to some people in the tap room and pick up some stuff that I hadn't seen in the last few months. So uh, it's kind of nice to do that. But um, yeah, it's gotten to the point right now where everybody's more or less completely remote, except whoever's packaging and needs to be on site. Um, but with that, you know, everybody's masked up and staying apart, even those that work in the same office or not even in you know their cubicles or staying further apart. It's just kind of weird, but it's kind of nice to have the flexibility to be remote because uh, all of us that need to be or just prefer to be have that flexibility um, but obviously we can't you know make it remotely so there is a lot of people that are still on the ground and kicking butt and you know doing a lot more than some of us are doing physically to, to keep the company going right now and we really do owe them all the respect in the world that you know they don't get to hear because we don't get to see them on a daily basis right now. Now do you only make uh, cider at the one location or do you make them at, at multiple spots? Just there in Corvallis, yeah. Um, there's 
technically two locations where we kind of make it in Corvallis because we had our original uh, Eastgate tap room that was the original cider house. And then when we outgrew that, that became our uh, barrel aging and kind of upper tier cider facility. And then we have a, another location about 10 minutes out in Corvallis by the airport and um, everything's made right there. So we do the cider, we got seltzer, we actually have canned wine that's coming in that we'll have a fun part in. Um, that's gonna be all done on site too. It's, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, it's, it's neat that we can keep it all under, under one roof. And that includes you know their marketing department and a lot of the construction is just local guys that we've, our owners have known forever. Like it's a very, very local tight knit. And it's always stayed within the, uh, the confines of Corvallis. <laughs> That's very cool. I was actually going to ask, since you said that you were uh, technically a winery or classified as a winery, I was going to ask if you had any plans to make wine. So you have <laughs> yeah. some canned wine on the horizon. Is is that the only one or are you guys going to play with some wine a little bit more than that? Um, so we've, it's, we've had, I'm trying to think of like how to describe it. We, so as a winery, we can technically make it. Uh, right now, we obviously don't have the capacity to just add that into our lineup. Um, so we're, we've developed a partnership on this one, which was a little bit outside of our realm and something very new and different, but it was kind of a mutual approach um, between us and uh, another winery that we're working with locally. And they're actually one of the, let's say third largest winery in Oregon. Um, they're called Stoller Vineyards. We're actually allowed to say that now we can announce who they are. It's launching in July. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, they, they have like one of the best tap rooms in America and like all these really cool, just like prestigious things in the wine world that we're just not accustomed to. But um, you know, I think mutually they understood that we have a big grocery presence. We understand the canned cider um, segment so well, and we have those relationships um, that we decided, hey, if you guys make this amazing wine that we don't really have the capability to produce right now, but it's literally just up the highway, you know, the agreement became, you know, we're going to go up there with our recipe and kind of help the blends and work with their cider or their winemakers to develop something that we find is best for, you know, our needs. Um, and they're making it and we're going to tank it all down to our facility, put it in our tanks and we can can it. And what's beautiful about it is every other can wine out there, in my opinion, is less than stellar. Uh, a lot of it is actually just garbage. <laughs> and um, a lot of it is made in, you know, at one time in the year when you know, grapes are harvested and fermented, they do a lot of that at once. And we're finding that a lot of the canned wine is just like a B rated or a, you know, a seconds grape that's just kind of tossed back and maybe added with some tossed with some sugar and you know sweetened up to put in a can and it just doesn't it it's already a not a great wine and then you let you know an acidic wine <coughs> sit in a can for six months and it starts to go bad so we're starting to see not only just not great quality wine but not great quality wine that's been tainted by a bad can and getting oxidized um so there's a lot of bad stuff out there that we're actually running into as far as we're gonna have to overcome these hurdles when we present canned wine because it has all these perceptions now um However, we're working with a very established winery that can not only produce the best quality wine, um, but they can basically store what they need until we need it to can it. So we'll be able to do it year round and fresh versus once a year that all these other, um, you know, previously done canned wines have been done. It's like nobody is actually making any canned wine to make a canned wine at the moment from what we can tell. And um, this will be the first one with that emphasis and knowing that we can do it year round multiple times a year versus just once is gonna be a huge advantage. Um, and then the wine itself, we've already lined up against all these others and it's phenomenal. Like oh, there's a Pinot Noir, a Pinot Gris and a Bubbly Rosé and they're just fantastic. And it's like, we didn't expect nothing less because <laughs> all the stuff we managed to make is just delicious. It's really hard to, you know, 
I try not to be biased, but we just make a lot of really good products and this was just no exception. So having a hand in it said a lot um, and just kind of being a part of the whole sales process too and them understanding who we are as a company and us knowing who they are as a winery was literally just like the perfect partnership. And uh, yeah, so, and it, for us it was easy because <clears throat> being a winery, you know, legally we didn't really have to navigate a whole lot of other channels. So there's no other breweries out there that are partnering with wineries to go sell a canned wine. Um, it's definitely unique for us, but uh, an advantage too. That's very cool. What's the, what's the name of the product? Is that It'll announced be, yet? Uh, Bold Leaf Wine. Very cool. Yeah. And then I'm um, like, I mean, years prior, I mean, I have a bunch of bottles of wine. I'm not really a wine guy, but I found some that I've really enjoyed. And they're actually two towns wines that you know some of the owners have made for occasions prior and we've been able to try them and um, have at different gatherings and employee events and stuff. So we've made, you know, quote, two towns wine before with wine grown on the owner's vineyards. And um, I've given some of these bottles to some, you know, pretty big wine drinkers and it's always been very well received. I mean, I always liked it, but I don't really trust my opinion on wine. Um, <laughs> But I'm also like, I said this to one of the owners, I was like, you know, I really, really like our wine. I get the canned stuff's really good, but I, I just don't know my wine. I technically don't drink it. I don't ever care for it, but this stuff's really good. And he just kind of laughed. He's like, you're exactly who we're going for. That's, you know, kind of the demographic because right now canned wine is not really established in a sense, but the younger demographic is not, you know, that's who we're going after. That's who we technically, you know, started with you know we had a very young fun group of followers and now it's really expanded into a huge category of different followers and it's um now just something that we're going to try and push with wine and try and reach a more broad audience than the smaller niche that's going after the cans currently uh, yeah yeah well i'm looking forward to that because i want to try that one the uh, monica really who was actually mm -hmm. in the last podcast she was the one that uh, had me try canned wine Oh really? And, uh, yeah, I'd say I'm probably in the same boat as you. I'm not a, exactly a wine connoisseur. Uh, I just know what I like when I try it. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's that's led you to certain things like okay, I know I want something that's a little bit bolder, that kind of thing. But I couldn't tell you, oh, it has this specific tasting note or anything like that. You know exactly. How far forward can you look um, when you're doing these forecastings? Um, like, are you planning for a year? Are you going by quarter? How does that look? <laughs> that's a question I kind of ask myself all the time because you know these decisions <laughs> about can wine pop up and you're like wait how long back did we you know, just have this conversation and I honestly don't know on a lot of them um the seltzer conversation was probably a year or two in advance of when we launched it just kind of knowing that it was becoming a thing um but then it was like the summer prior when White Claw just blew up and took over the world so but I just feel like we, you know, from the sales standpoint and marketing standpoint, that was all done in under six months. So for all I know, that conversation was six months and two weeks prior, you know, it's really hard to say. And then with the wine piece now, like this is a very big avenue to kind of transition into um, in terms of working with somebody else to produce something, let alone, you know, doing a lot of it in-house at the same time. Um, so I'd imagine that conversation has probably started much further in advance um, versus, you know, a lot of the ciders that we're looking at might even just be a couple months in advance or even a few weeks for some of the limited releases before like we're like oh shoot let's just tweak this recipe a little bit and try some stuff so it's uh all over the place i wish there was some you know better method to the madness but realistically it's just kind of like um we have an idea we have a vision and let's just make it happen somehow some way with some of the smartest people i've ever managed to work with and it manages to get done so 
if there's any advice to that in the beer world, it's like, I don't know if there's a ton of forecasting that we rely on in terms of like what we, you know, maybe consistently meet for, but um, there at least as, I don't know, I could be wrong too. But in terms of what we've done in the past, a lot of it has been, you know, done very quickly. And I just don't know how far those conversations can be had prior. Um, so yeah. anyhow. Now, for this crazy business, I mean, because it, it sounds insane. I'm like, I'm ready to go get a job over there and switch industries. <laughs> it's almost uh, recession-proof. <laughs> yeah. How uh, how did you end up getting into it? I guess let's, let's start with, uh, like, going way back in terms of, like, high school. Yeah. Uh, did you know what you wanted to go to college for? Not entirely. I mean, honestly, I was thinking about this earlier. Remember when I borrowed that, like, flight simulator joystick kit from you a while oh, yeah, back? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I think it was junior year of high school, and I was like, I really want to be a pilot. And I was actually applying for some piloting programs and looking at that avenue. Um, but at the same time, was taking, like, physics and some pre-calc, and I was just, I got so burnt out on math by the end of that year that I literally just put that off. And I was like, I just kind of want a more... I hate using this word now, like normal or general college experience, but that's more or less the avenue I was looking at. But um, Oregon was kind of initially a, an opportunity for me to just kind of get out, but stay close enough, but also, you know, go fly fishing and do snowboarding, get out, go hiking. And the coast was right there. Like it just, it had so much of what in my heart was interesting. And I knew that once I got there, you know, after a little bit of soul searching, I'd probably figure out what I wanted to do. And it took some studying abroad to kind of figure that out as well. So initially I was, you know, just into marketing and promotions. Like I was also playing a ton of tournament paintball in high school and um, wanted to be just a part of, you know, some of those trade shows and events and being able to go out and, you know, not only be an attendee of some of these big events that I used to love, but also support them. So I was kind of just going after that as a narrow avenue of just marketing promotions. Uh, Nike was also a huge influence at the University of Oregon, as most people might know, um, with the football program there. And as much into sports as I was, that was kind of an initial draw. But I also realized like everybody that went to Oregon to study marketing wants to work for Nike. So mm. I realized pretty quickly that, you know, the chances were slim unless I really, really wanted to pursue that. And that honestly, wasn't you know my dream and desire to work for a massive corporation of any sort. Um, and Meanwhile, I was, you know, being in Eugene, Oregon, which is just a weird enough little place as it is, um, had a nice little craft boom town with their or craft boom and their beer that was going on. And um, initially, I mean, I was only 18 when I started. I didn't even have my first beer ever until I was 18. And like, it wasn't until I was, you know, maybe a year or two after that, that I had had a craft beer and understood what it was. So like, I think it was by the time I was 19 and kind of got to, you know, Honestly, I wasn't even trying a bunch of the beers. It was just the culture. I mean, I couldn't drink at the time, but it was everywhere and you could see it. You could see the people that were you know, always just having a good time at different tap houses and pubs and the brewers were always out mingling with the people and, you know, the staff was always out mingling with people and it was just a whole different industry that was not only thriving, but it was just something I never came to expect in a professional industry. It was um, something unique and seemed really fitting to me because I was just kind of abnormal from day one and never really wanted to go down that standard channel. And um, it was just having a different ambiance to the whole craft uh, craft folks. And uh, they're just weird people. They're, they're quirky, they're different. <laughs> and they managed to, you know, structure it all in a way that's you know profitable enough for us to live a very, you know, comfortable and happy work lifestyle. Um, you know, it's not going to make anybody wealthy and rich, but it's, it's enjoyable. So once I saw that, it was kind of just like, all right, I'm going to take the general marketing route and 
get myself as involved as possible with you know, clubs and things that are interesting. And at the time it was snowboard club and different music courses and meeting up with people to play music. So like, I wasn't necessarily pursuing my profession, but I was just trying to really find what mattered to me, what was important and you know, who I really wanted to surround myself with. And ultimately the beer industry is all of that. You know, you got live events going on all the time. You got musicians everywhere and you got people making beer and, at the end of the day, to me, they're artists. I mean, they're crafting recipes that people have never done before and making some sense of them. So it's a little bit of you know, that creative artistry route, but also tying into something professional that everybody enjoys for the most part. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that was kind of the big eye-opening piece. Studying in New Zealand was big too, because that's a big wine country. And that's kind of where I started to appreciate cider. Um, initially, I was just a beer guy. I didn't really dive into cider much until I returned from there and noticed what craft cider was doing in the States. Um, but again, it was just the craft cider was kind of what craft beer was for a sec. It was becoming innovative and it was getting really weird and people were doing fun stuff with it. It became kind of that next boom behind what craft beer was doing. So it kind of latched onto that a little bit. Um, and yeah, sky was the limit from there. There's never really a shortage of opportunities and like different you know, positions within companies that always just have their own uh, just weird, interesting perks and things to them. So kept me on my toes. How did you uh, end up in New Zealand? I watched way too many snowboard videos growing up, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, pretty much saw it on a video at one point and then just kind of fell in love with the uh, the scenery and everything that it had to offer. And um, it was just always on my on my radar. And then at one point going, I think it was before I even applied to Oregon, I had saw that they had a, a connection to a program out there that uh, had a business program and they also had a tourism business program. So I took a bunch of courses in tourism business that kind of tied into some of the interests and things I developed along the way. But um, yeah, initially it was honestly just scenery. Like I can't even watch Lord of the Rings anymore and focus on the movie. I just, Ooh, I've been to that mountain. I've seen that place. I want to go back. And then before I know it, the movie's over. I'm just like, no, no, what I'm watching anymore. So um, just like a little kid that sees shiny colors and kind of gets attracted to them. And <laughs> if I don't go and see them at some point, then you know, life's, life's not complete. And sure enough, so, it just ended up having like the best people ever out there. And um, how long were you there? Uh, six months initially for one semester to study, and then uh, two years later went back for another six months to just kind of travel around in a camper car and do that lifestyle for a little bit. And then what? Uh, basically, you felt that uh, you were good there. You got what you needed. And it was time to come back and look for work here, or how did that work out? Uh, it was well. Honestly, a failed relationship more than anything. So I went over there the second time with somebody and uh, kind of tried to make things work and make the best of it. And um, you know, it was a one-way ticket trip, and you know we managed to stay friends and cordial through all of it. But it was just kind of apparent that it wasn't going to work. So there was already some plans to return and um, kind of just make the best of the return. Uh, at that point, you know, I wasn't trying to stay there and you know get through. Unfortunately, it was like almost a four-year relationship at the time. So it didn't seem like a good place to stay and try and get through anything without family around. So it was just a de decision to come home and kind of sort things out for a little bit. And um, I honestly kind of just gave myself a five-year plan in Portland. I was just like, you know, I'm going to see what I can do and get a job and, you know, make the best of everything that's around here. And to me, it was a lot of what New Zealand had to offer in terms of life away from work. And you know, we got volcanoes to go climb and surfing on the coast, lots of hiking and um, it just seemed like a really good place to kind of settle down and establish some roots if I was going to do it, honestly, anywhere in the U.S. because I was just pretty set on living abroad. It wasn't really um, an option to come back and live here. It just kind of happened. And uh, 
it worked out that way. Um, and yeah, <laughs> um, I don't remember where that conversation or the question actually started there, but. So, but when you get back here um, and you have your five-year plan, you've graduated at this point uh, and so your degree is actually in marketing. Yes. How did you end up getting your first job with the, uh, with the beer company? Uh, so it's actually a, a friend, uh, her name's Amanda, and I actually was in a snowboard club at U of O that she was in. And like, we weren't even great friends. We didn't talk more than a few times, but we were just like on the same Facebook snowboard club U of O group kind of thing and kept in touch every once in a while. And um, I was in New Zealand at the time in a library, like a week before returning home, just looking at job postings, trying to find out oh, what was going to, what am I going to make of this return? And um, she had a post up saying that they were looking for um, a replacement analyst and she was on that analyst team. So she became like basically my mentor um, and into the company there and uh, taught me a lot about Excel and kind of got in on that job and did it for a couple of years. Ended up being like three of us um, analysts on that little craft beer panel more or less. It was really cool. It was kind of a neat little team that we formed that didn't really exist in a lot of distributorships because craft beer just wasn't weird and diverse in a lot of places like it was Portland. So um, it was honestly just a really strange, but a blessing of an opportunity. Um, there was that opportunity there to apply for it. And I just applied for it and got an interview or two. And a lot of the questions at the interview weren't even necessarily directed towards like, Oh, what's your experience in the industry? And what's your experience with Excel? Like I had just gotten back from being in New Zealand for six months. So they kind of just ate all those questions up and found it really interesting. <laughs> so like it made that part easy, uh, built a couple presentations and follow up interviews. And that was it. Um, it, looking back, it was you know, definitely the easiest interview. I think, well, I shouldn't say that it was stressful, but like it, it's a funny situation that like I didn't, feel near qualified enough for it. Um, but just by simply having, you know, enough experience, having that relationship and just literally the desire to learn and pick it up as quickly as I did was kind of what got me in. Um, yeah, well, that's a, it's like a little stressful sounding uh, just from the analyst uh, title alone. How much <laughs> did you know about the job going into it or did you just go for it? Like, Hey, I need a job. I think I can do it. <laughs> Pretty much just went for it. I was like, oh, it's a job with a beer company. And from what I hear, like, you know, the experience with my coworker at the time was pretty cool. So I was like, I'm just going to go for it. Like, why not? And um, yeah, it was different. I was definitely like one of the youngest people in the office working with a bunch of much, much older people that have been in the industry forever. Um, and it was intimidating to an extent, but like kind of being the young energy in the office amidst a crazy craft beer boom that was just being consumed by millennials. And that's kind of what I was being considered in the office. Like it, it gave me enough of a presence to feel meaningful and then also like just drive with the team and throw ideas out there and feel confident in doing it. Um, so if anything, I think that's probably what was noticed initially. It was probably just my, you know, overall desire to be involved and my thorough interest in every aspect of the company and everybody and what they do, you know, I've never just kind of locked myself in one place. And that's kind of like my role now is literally tied into every department and it's a lot of fun because I get to work with everybody and I'm just thoroughly interested in everybody and what they have to offer. Um, and I can only hope that that's kind of my case too. And I just want to be able to provide, you know, not only like this podcast, it's like there's so much information out there that people have to, to give off that's beneficial. And by doing that, you know, from day one at the analyst position to even now, just by working with people and you know, getting their perspective and, obtaining as much knowledge as possible is ultimately just going to make you 
a more interesting person and a more you know productive and I think beneficial person to any company in the long run. And that's maybe just a load of crap, but that worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what's what's next? Are there any specific projects or products you want to work on? Is there a specific uh, position you'd like to end up in your career, or are you just kind of seeing where things go? Uh, well, it just keeps getting weirder and more interesting for me. Um, like this right now is actually ideal. Uh, back in January, I actually approached the company with kind of a plan. I was looking to relocate in a sense to just work more remote. I didn't want to leave the company at all, but um, last March, a little over a year ago, a year ago from March, I was actually diagnosed with uh, Lyme disease. Oh, so wow. yeah, I've been dealing with that for a really long time. Apparently um, it's not you know, severe and dismantling, but it's enough to make travel and a lot of just day-to-day -day tasks difficult enough to, you know, not navigate 100%. You know, I'm just not in the shape that I'd like to be in order to be 100% at a lot of these things. So, um, yeah, the travel and the lack of being able to keep up with just being out in grocery stores all the time and just being defeated and literally having no energy a lot of days was just like, all right, this isn't working, um, but I'm still valuable. Like I can still do something. I can still provide a lot of this information. I just you know, need to need to lay low. Um, so that's kind of where that conversation started. That was back in January. And then, um, you know, when the pandemic thing rolled around and Sam left this role, it kind of just worked out perfectly. But um, yeah, initially I was like kind of trying to still figure that out in a lot of ways. And this was more or less what I had in mind in terms of like what I could do for the company. I have a lot of different random hats I can wear and skill sets that would navigate and drive really well and I can do it all remotely. Um, so I'd actually approached them about the idea of moving to Costa Rica <laughs> because that is a place I've been spending a couple weeks a year for the last few years. Um, and just from like a health standpoint, it has been beyond the best place that I can be like from the diet, the lifestyle, um, I'm a big surfer, so I surf, you know, as much as I can, but, you know, unless I'm doing it every day, like my body's not in a loose and, you know, non-inflamed environment that it should be. And um, so I've just kind of realized that if I really want to be the best version of me, I need to go put myself in a situation to pursue that. Um, but I can also take the work with me. So that was kind of a big piece in the last six months was just trying to navigate, all right, what's best professionally, but also physically and for my own health. And, um, I could not tip my hat off to this company enough just because of, you know, being able to navigate this, you know, they listened and were able to provide, you know, enough resources to make me um, comfortable with pursuing it. And, you know, it's the avenues are there now, but I just can't really go anywhere because every border's more or less shut down in places I'd like to go. So that's all kind of on hold. But um, in terms of just where I want to go, I'm honestly just going to roll with this to the fullest extent. I mean, the company's doing so many big things that they're launching, you know, the wine and, more exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. Like it'd be really, really, really difficult to try and do anything else, but what, you know, we're doing here right now, you know, I do thoroughly enjoy the role. It's just, it became a really big challenge on the sales side of things for a while. And uh, yeah, the switch up's been a lifesaver to an extent, but also like, <laughs> oh, I had this big plan and I was going to do the move and try and work down there. And then uh, that didn't happen. So now it's like trying to, Kind of reestablish a new mindset in terms of what's long term up here um, but you know everything's great right now and i can't complain so maybe once we get through it i'll be able to work remote you know every once in a while and spend some time here and there but uh yeah just trying to keep health on track is definitely priority one what's the uh, prognosis look like for lyme disease i mean i i've 
obviously I know of Lyme disease, you get it from ticks, things like that, exactly. but so what, uh, is it just something you have to treat? There's not actually a cure for it? Or? It's definitely not curable in a lot of cases uh, if you've had it for a while. So yeah, that's definitely a general consensus. Um, you'd get it from a tick bite, um, but there's a lot of other studies that show, you know, mosquitoes could carry it, you know, sometimes saliva's carried it. Like it's one of those things that's becoming likely much more apparent than we realize, but only certain people, because it's an autoimmune response, like only certain people, you know, will respond negatively to it. And mm -hmm. with that, there's a lot of co-infections that are involved with Lyme disease. So, I mean, that's one bacteria, but a tick, for example, commonly injects three or four other bacterias that are called co-infections and they all create this, what's called the Lyme disease complex. And it's like this just web of different syndromes and things all clashing together. So it's, very complicated in that sense and that's why it's taken forever for it to be accurately tested and that's kind of um, the biggest issue is it's almost impossible to test for accurately until you really dive into it you look at the symptoms you follow up on testing you got to like get deep tissue massages before the testing to release toxins that actually release the bacteria unless you're having a flare-up like you can't really pinpoint it um, so yeah the, the bacteria likes to burrow deep in a lot of weird places so it just makes it very difficult to, to test for. And that's why like for roughly 15 years, I've had increasing amounts of just weird aches and pains that I kind of just brushed off as growing pains and then brushed off as, oh, I got some bad discs in my back. So that's why those spasms are happening. But you know, they just get worse and worse. And then I started having nerve issues and start like passing out in random places, like just things that get kind of weird. <laughs> and you're like, all right, something's not right. Um, so I ended up seeing a specialist locally that was actually for uh, fibromyalgia, which was the initial diagnosis, which is kind of just the you know, end all be all. We don't know what it is, but look at fibromyalgia, research it. And that was kind of the answer I was given for two years straight. Like, we don't have an answer for you, but look at this and do some research and you know, look at some therapy methods and stuff. And was offered a lot of just, you know, terrible drugs and things that I just didn't want any part of. So um, eventually, yeah, it's after you have it for more than even a few months, it can become chronic. Once it buries itself in deep enough places, it's uh, something you just end up kind of having to deal with for life. And there are antibiotics you can take initially to battle it because most people get symptoms right away after they get bit. I don't remember a bite, but I also did grow up going into the woods a lot. So it could have been anything, um, could have just contracted it elsewhere for all I know. It's like there's, it's like Corona, for example, there's just a lot of research that needs to be done that they just don't have answers for yet. Yeah, you said 15 years. I didn't realize you were dealing with it that long. It sounds like you could have picked it up um, like in Mammoth or something. Definitely. And that's realistically what probably happened. You know, I don't remember any bite. I don't ever taking any ticks out of me. But, you know, it's just one of those things that is obviously a lingering possibility and could happen on a baseball field for all I know. But yeah, I had like some of the worst Achilles pains ever. And that was, that's like both Achilles ankle. Yeah, like both of them were awful through junior high baseball. And um, at that point, it's just like, oh, you know, you're preteen, you're just going through some growing pains, right? That's like yeah. what it was brushed off for. But like for months and months on end, probably not. And then cross country was just like instant shin splints that never went away. And like that inflammation was like a whole nother weird episode. And like, I eventually just had to stop running. And to this day, I like can't really run without getting them instantly. Um, so for a while, it was a lot of these things that you're just like, oh, it's avoidable if you just like have the right footwear, get the right massages. But it was like every aspect of thing that I was doing required that kind of treatment. I was like, this isn't fun anymore, <laughs> like, <laughs> especially when you're trying to travel and maintain what's that I would consider a fun industry and a fun job. It's like you're trying to go out and meet with your distributor partners in other states and like have a night of drinking. And like, at, meanwhile, every day I'm just dealing with like some of these aches and pains and tension and stuff that just isn't apparently normal, but I brushed it off as normal for too long. And 
starts to catch up with you and you start getting sick on trips and things. It's like, all right, let's you know, tone back and kind of, you know, reestablish some basis and kind of get my homeostasis back. <laughs> so yeah, it's been, wow. it's been a jive and a juggle and it's not fun, but at the end of the day, I could just try and stay optimistic about it, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. you've been through it. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to take it off the personal side, uh, yeah, no worries. What would you say, like, who would you say this job is for? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of communication. Do you see different types of personalities or is it largely people that are good talkers? Uh, what would you say if somebody wanted to get into this? Like, is there something they should focus on? Uh, it takes a very creative person, in my opinion, to really, to be the best and kind of most appreciated. You know, there's a lot of people in the business that are very good at what they do. There's a lot of people in the business that are, respected and there's ones that are very good but not well respected you know there's just in my opinion you know there's so much of traditional business that's valuable but with the relationship side and the relationship side being as diverse as it is like no two bar owners are the same no two grocery owners are the same and then you go to an actual grocery corporate buyer and they've probably been in that position for 30 years and you know drink Coors Light and whiskey like they're just different they don't get craft beer the same so we run into a lot of these different um just inadequacies in kind of the day-to-day life and uh it gotta stay on your toes you just gotta have a creative mindset i think having a thorough interest in just about everything you can will definitely play a part um it's a very small industry too so i mean it's just as easy to burn a bridge as it is to you know make a sale so i mean it's not worth you know talking down on other people as it is just pushing yourself to be the best you can be and there's a lot of that in the industry and every every industry has that but um we see a lot of just like negative attacks negative campaigns and things like that you're just like you know that stuff doesn't just go away you know we're all in this together we're all making the same thing we're all putting booze in a can to make people happy so it's just having i think not only the uh a good business mindset is going to get you far but being creative and trying to put those together and being a little more casual about it um it's like having worked on the distributor side you know you go onto the wine side of the office it's a lot more buttoned up and it's very different than the beer side um, but we're also learning now wine distribution is entirely different than beer distribution. And some corporate chains actually don't even deal with beer distributors for wine. You got to put it through a central warehouse. So there's just like a lack of, you know, interpersonal communication going on in that alone. And it was very apparent working in that office. I mean, just the way you'd have to talk to one side of the office was different than you talk to the other side of the office. And unfortunately me being a young beer person, like I was just looked at differently at you know, different parts of the office. So it was like, you know, but at the end of the day, I could only just you know, keep a smile on, ask a lot of questions and just be professional about it and you make friends. But it was kind of, it was a little bit intimidating at first, but um, just being a beer guy amongst, you know, a sea of wine people actually was a little bit strange at times in that office. And now I'm trying to find that balance. And at the end of the day, it's just, you know, it's finding a mutual respect, but also, you know, understanding why they are that way. It's a very different business. Like if you're not dressed up, buttoned up, you're not going to be taken seriously in the wine world. But if you're wearing a suit in a beer meeting, you're not going to get taken seriously either. So it's uh, <laughs> just trying to navigate, you know, the different perspectives, but also, you know, what's professional, what's not. And trying to mesh into all of that is probably the biggest quality that you can't really teach anybody, but you can only be aware of. Is there a specific uh, major that you think would cater to this or is it just, Hey, get your business classes, pay attention <laughs> and that will help you. If I had to go back, I think more public speaking would have been really beneficial. Um, I had zero comfort with talking in front of people probably until I've studied abroad. And 
it was kind of like that analogy of or whatever that saying is just imagine you're talking to a room full of naked people well, it's like just go talk to a room full of foreign people that you've never seen before and that'll that'll get rid of a lot of jitters real quick <laughs> so you know i did that a few times there and came back and just realized instantly i was just like this is actually a lot easier than i expected and it's way more it's just way more beneficial to hold a conversation about anything with somebody than to just brush them off and walk away like there's always something good to come out of it so i think some sort of like public speaking or just being more involved in honestly, social groups is probably the best thing. Um, you know, nothing that I studied in particular is pertaining to like where I'm at now, but I think it's more the people and the experiences along the way that really shaped a lot of that. So you know, if you're going to go and study and get a 4.0 and lock yourself in a library, like that's great. But when it comes to social skills, are you going to be able to you know, talk to somebody in the beer world if you're also a beer nerd and like to homebrew on the side? Like it's, you know, if you're a homebrewer, you're probably a little bit you know more creative and a little bit more isolated, right? So let's go out and, you know, branch into a social group of different homebrewers. And, you know, this is just a generalization, but yeah, if you can go and attach yourself to a group and maybe learn a couple things, oh, and all of a sudden there's a couple of brewers working together on a project and, oh, what do you know? You just made the next best beer with three people, you know? So um, yeah, just having a little bit of that, but it's honestly like, to me, that's, it's like, don't let schooling interfere with your education. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, so that's always kind of been, something I held close to me and uh yeah I mean, school is you know it's kind of like growing up with religion you know there's a lot of great guidelines but at the end of the day you're in charge of what you believe in and you can make those decisions and you can you know, put yourself on a path that's either productive or not and you know, a lot of that's just interpersonal skills well we've been going for a little over an hour now it's actually like <laughs> hour hour 20 almost uh, I could talk about this stuff all day but um <laughs> need a round two yeah, exactly. I, I think it'd be a good idea, especially because I'd like to see where it's going. Um, Actually, a follow-up would be fun, yeah, with after the wine launch and some of the other stuff we have coming down. Is, uh, you have uh, maybe launching the next wine in Costa Rica, you know? There we go, yeah. <laughs> but do you have any, um, like, parting wisdom, whether it was uh, passed on to you, you know, something that you've learned, um, or kind of in the same vein you were talking about where you said don't let the schooling get in the way of your education yeah somebody's um, looking at this field business in general whatever what would you say to them i think it kind of it would reflect a lot on probably just conversations i've had with a lot of friends and family in general especially lately a lot of people are in rough places right now whether it's personally or with work but um I always tell people like it's just good to make a big change if you need it um, if you're stuck in a rut you're not really believing in what you're doing just do something crazy. Like you can always come back to what you were doing, but if you don't step out of your boundaries and you know study abroad or maybe go travel in another country, try something that's a little out of your realm. Like it's you're never quite going to understand you know, your capabilities and you know the opportunities that are out there. Um, I've always wanted to get out and travel and see more of the world as a kid. I remember being like six or seven, asking my parents, can we move out of Chino Hills? Like, I just don't feel right here. Like, there's just something else I want to do. And obviously that didn't happen. But, you know, when I had the opportunity to do it, it was scary and it was terrifying. But like, I think just making that leap and, you know, just looking back, like, I feel bad. Like, there's all these risks associated. I haven't kept in touch with you at all. But like, obviously I would love to now, you know, because you, know, you got a lot going for you and I'm sure a lot of our friends that we you know kept in touch with at the time probably have a lot going on but um, you know I definitely pushed myself in another direction just to kind of see what am I capable of outside of you know the confines of what I grew up in and what I felt was restrictive at the time and a lot of it was just getting out seeing the world putting myself in interesting situations and 
just maybe having a story to tell at the end of it. But at the end of the day, knowing it's also going to help me uh, be just more professional and, you know, a little more social, if anything. So I was a really quiet kid growing up and never really knew how to approach people and how to talk to adults. And you can see a lot of that now in our generation, even. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it's a little concerning, but it's also understandable. You know, if you didn't have experiences to really advance yourself, then I just challenge people to do that more, whether it's through traveling or learning an instrument and just like get a little weird and do something outside of your comfort zone and try to get comfortable with it because uh you know it might not make you a new friend overnight but you'll probably make 10 pretty interesting ones and uh, yeah, yeah you know i just think there's uh, a lack of that awareness you know a lot of people get stuck in one situation and can do a lot of things in that situation to make it better and we'll probably do that you know and that's okay that works for a lot of folks but for me i just can't get stuck in one place for too long so it's uh you know, it hit me a couple months ago and I was just like, I'm not doing well. I'm like kind of sick and this traveling stuff sucks. And like, I need to make a big move. <laughs> you know, it, that is honestly not a huge move for me. It's just like, I've been across the countries before and like, I've done it and I know I'm happier there and life's a lot simpler and slower. Like if anything, that's not a move. That's just like a step back in a way to kind of focus on stuff. But, you know, I can understand to some people that's like, holy crap, you're going to pick up everything and go over there. Like, when I look at it that way, yeah, it's it's actually a big deal. <laughs> but but you know, looking at it from the perspective that you know, if I go and I don't like it, I can always come back. And at the end of the day, I already know that that's a better place to be, and you know, um, based on prior experiences of just giving it a shot, trying it out, and renting a car and driving through some off-road jungles, and you know, meeting some really fun people and seeing monkeys and stuff. Like it's just it's an interesting lifestyle. Why not pursue it for a bit? You can always come back. <laughs> So that's kind of been my take on everything lately is, you know, give it a shot. If your mind's even on it, you can always come back. Well, that's awesome. I think that's great advice. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate it, Boomer. We definitely need to stay in touch now. So. Yeah, but, please uh, do. I'm really, <laughs> really glad you reached out. That was not something I expected to see on a, a LinkedIn message. And I was like, right? oh, shoot, that is amazing. <laughs> like, you know, so thank you so much. It's an honor to, honestly, it's probably the best way to catch up to an extent. So you can get rid of a lot of that stuff and then just kind of focus on some, uh, how you been day to day, man? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, so, yeah. Well, I'm going to bug you some more uh, about the industry anyway, because it's fascinating to me. So <laughs> That's great. Yeah. No, and um, offline, I'll keep in touch. I'll make sure I send some, uh, send some of our latest stuff down your way so you can try it. All right. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Awesome. Well, thank you so All much, right. Nick. This was fantastic. Thanks, Boom. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it and want to hear more, please rate the show, like and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you may get your podcasts. If you want to see the visual component of the show, there is a YouTube page. Just search The Job in Detail and we should pop up. Today's episode started with video, but as you heard, we had a buffering issue that resulted in losing the video part of the way through, but at least you can see what some of the guests look like. If you'd like to check out more about Two Town Cider House, you can find them at twotownciderhouse.com. That's the digit two. And that's actually where Boomer's featured in one of the slideshows on the homepage. It sounds like they have some exciting products on the horizon and we'll be scheduling a follow-up episode sometime in the future. If you have any ideas for the show, would like to support the show, or you'd like to be interviewed yourself, reach out at thejobindetail.com or through the show's Anchor page at anchor.fm slash thejobindetail. Thank you again for listening, and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. 
Stay safe and see you on the next episode.